Working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey, everybody. This is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today, my guest is drummer Matt Johnson. Matt has played on some of the most critically acclaimed records throughout his long career, as well as performing on some of the more memorable tours from the early 90s on. From recording this seminal cult-creating album Grace with Jeff Buckley in 1993 at the age of 22, he's worked with a wide spectrum of artists in recent decades, including Rufus Wainwright, Martha Wainwright, Allegiant Fields, Australia's Angus and Julia Stone, Beth Orton, Karen Ann, Duncan Sheik, and St. Vincent, the avant-garde guitarist, songwriter, and performer who continues to astonish listeners and concertgoers everywhere with her ever-evolving musical statements. To find out more about this episode and all the episodes that we've done, you can go to workingdrummer.net. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. Leave a rating and review. This always helps us grow. If you like what we're doing here at Working Drummer Podcast and you want to help sustain this ongoing project, there's a way that you can help. And there are many progressive rewards for those of you who can help. I'm talking about free Skype lessons from pro drummers like Ben Caesar and Carter McLean. A free Working Drummer t-shirt, access to bonus content, shout-outs, Twitter follows, and even a personal feature on you within an episode. Check out all the details at patreon.com slash working drummer. I'd like to introduce you all to Crush Drums by telling you about one of their new lines. They are offering a brand new birch kit called the Sublime Birch Series. The Sublime Birch is 100% North American birch. Here's Crush's own Terry Platt talking about some of the cool features of the Sublime Birch Series. One thing that Crush has always done is on our 14-inch floor toms, we do a 14 by 13. It's got the fullness and depth of a 14 by 14 tom, but you can also, tuning range-wise, manipulate it to sound more like a 14 by 12 for the guys that, that enjoy that tone as well. It also includes the hoop saver claws that we developed where we actually have the rubber grommet under the claw protruding through the front of the claw. So if somebody grabs their drum set and sets it down, say on concrete, you know, claw side down, it doesn't scratch up everything. And here's one of my favorite things about what Crush is doing. The bearing edges are cut a little more specifically for the drums. Our standard edge is a, you know, kind of a double 45 and the outside is rounded over so you get some more head contact with the shell. On the bass drum, you'll notice that the resonant side is even rounder than that and then the uh, batter side is going to be a little bit sharper just so you get that nice snap out of the kick but the resonant head really brings the whole shell into the equation of the tone you can also find a link to the new sublime birch series in our show notes and see the beautiful finishes and configurations they offer in the near future we've got much more to share in regard to crush drums and this dynamic company for now check out crush drums at crushdrum.com So here you go. Here is my conversation with Matt Johnson. I'm working a little bit with uh, with a singer called Jay Bird, who's out of England, and uh, she's a she's a great young uh, singer songwriter. So I've been doing a bunch of recording and then some TV spots with her, and uh, some. It looks like we're going to be doing a live uh, a live show uh, back in New York later in the month, and so there's been an Adam with a lot of. Um, there's a bit of studio work that I'm always, you know, uh, continuing on with. There's a band called Cones, 
that I, that I work with from time to time. So doing that and, and a handful of other things. I've been working with a band called Elysian Fields. Yeah. Uh, uh, we did a record uh, in the, I guess, the late fall, uh, and that's kind of been sequenced, and I believe mastered now, so that's about to come out. It's called Pink Air. Uh, that was recorded up at the, this guy Danny Bloom's studio up, upstate New York. Um, I'm living out in L.A., so uh, I spend also a lot of my time preparing for the upcoming St. Vincent tour uh, yeah. starting in uh starting in live band gigs in April. So, um, I'm, you know, there's a, quite a lot of electronics, uh, a lot of triggers, uh, you know, um, a lot of MIDI. So, uh, Ableton, you know, using Ableton and, um, you know, uh, just designing a, a, a sort of like little suite of sounds per song or per section of song and then, yeah, you know, dig, digging in and trying to learn the parts, learn what sounds are where and oh, where oh. they're relevant. Yeah, there's that too. I mean, I, I guess it's not just well, I'll just run these tunes down and and get the form and the tempos and and everything like that. It, there's so much more to it. And and I want to ask you about that. But is there a, a a standard process in which you're working with some of these artists? Say aside from Saint Vincent, uh, where you're going in, you're tracking a record, it gets mixed, mastered. You know, usually the drummer is the first one to hear it and the last one to hear the final product. You know, mm, we right. lay we lay our parts down first, and then. You know, a year later or so, somebody says, oh, here's the record. And you're like, oh, yeah, right. I remember that. Uh, <laughs> so are you, is it, is it kind of, okay, we're recording this record, and then when, it, when it's available, we're going to tour in support of it? Is there kind of a season? Are you seeing a cycle to this? Is that what's happening mostly with some of these artists, uh, like Elysian Fields and the, some of the others that you mentioned? I would say that, you know, it's, it really is less than a cycle. It's more like, uh, you know, each each project is an individual, okay. you know, it's a very highly individualized process. So, you know, some of the things that I record on, I never tour. And then some, some of the stuff that I never recorded, I will tour. Um, so, or, or some combination of both. So um, the correlation between like, you know, oh, I played on this record and now I'm going on tour. Uh, that correlation isn't as tight as one might think from the outside looking mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. um you know especially with the studio uh, the you know production process in the studio uh, doesn't even require a studio first of all um yeah right and, and of course increasingly recordings don't require musicians <laughs> um right so you know that that hence why i think a lot of music uh in a way I, this isn't disparaging it's just i think it's sort of a fact yeah. A lot of music today sounds not unlike a software demo. Um, you know, it, it, and, and I don't, I, I really don't mean that to say that's bad. I just mean that, you know, we've gone from playing instruments to playing computers or playing with computers right. in order to, and, and, and to and, and toward arriving at musical results. So, yeah, yeah it's like, um, that's exciting for me. I think one of the really cool things about it where it's really been a, a lot of stuff to learn for me is, uh, you know, learning how to adapt for live performance, uh, some type of programmed or, or extremely highly produced, uh, you know, kind of rhythm track. Yeah. Uh, that's definitely added to the drummer's job. 
Right. And and I remind people, like, this podcast is called Working Drummer. And so a lot of the things that we focus on is what do you do as a drummer that is in demand, that's, that works. Um, there is a different approach to learning music and adapting to different situations that may be may not be an idea that you subscribe to 100% the way music is produced or whatever, but this is this is how things change. Maybe it's not your favorite thing, but it is what you do. And if you want to be relevant, if you want to stay busy, then you need to know how things are. I mean, even even in acoustic music, I mean, you're, you're hearing changes in the, the, the role of the drummer. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I, okay, so... Break. You know, I'm going to try to you know interpret and break down your question as best I can. Like, what what do I do to to prepare, or what do I do to I don't know to keep working or to uh, I guess stay on the scene. You know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I would say um, much of the stuff that I see within. I'm going to mention this. I, I don't. I, I'm not totally sure. I should mention this because it. You know, I, I don't, I don't want to sound like a snob or something, or like I'm judging people because I'm really not. Sure. Once, once again, I. You know, I think it's sort of a fact. Like a lot of the stuff that I see being done within clinic culture, um, is pretty much precisely and exactly the things that I would have been fired for if I ever tried to play that stuff mm-hmm. uh, in, in in most professional settings. Mm-hmm. Um. So, you know, I didn't do, I've been playing since 1980, and uh, it's 2018 now, and I've done, I didn't ever do a clinic, I believe, until 2016. Uh, I only taught, you know, if if I taught at all, I taught one-on-one. So I would start out by saying that, like, a lot of the stuff that I've seen, and believe me, I, I could learn as much from a drum clinic as anybody else. I go in there and I'd be like, wow, that's a bunch of stuff I can't do. Oh my God. <laughs> you know, that, that's totally normal for me. And I'm not, I'm not trying to be phony humble or humble or anything. I'm just telling you once again, that's a fact. I go into a drum clinic. I'm like, whoa, I've only been to a few of them, but it's like, oh my Lord, that's a bunch of stuff I can't do. So, and then, and then it's weird. Like there's this little light that goes off in the back of my head. I'm like, isn't that weird that I can't do any of that stuff, but I've somehow by hook or by crook, I've been playing drums as a professional since I was like, you know, about 22, 20, 22 years old or something, yeah. 20, right? you know, right. I mean, off and on since I was 20 or since I was a teenager. And then, you know, and then consistently since I was in my early 20s, it's like weird to think about that. There's this divide between a lot of the stuff that's in the clinic culture and and then the the reality of the working drummer and Mark Stepro brought this up in terms of your uh, you know uh, about your podcast that you tend to focus on well by the you know given the name of it you know you tend to focus on the working drummer so yeah you know so I have to realize that probably the audience listening to this podcast is going to have an interest in actually playing music yeah. with other musicians and not being worshipped by other drummers. Yes, I hope so. And we have increasingly more and more non-drummers that are listeners, or or at least admit oh, okay. that that are admitting to. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, you know, I'll tell you that there's a, there's a couple basic things that I try to do. Yeah, uh, I, I try to do this. I originally started doing these things because I was technically not very good at playing the drums. Uh, I consider myself as a drummer somebody who was very, very emotionally driven. 
Yeah. Um, I wasn't a, a technical nincompoop, and it, uh, but I wasn't like in the top three percent or two percent of world worldwide drummers, or maybe even the top five percent of drummers worldwide. You know, in terms of my technical abilities, I, I could have been, you know, lower than in the top ten percent. I don't know what that would be if there's even a way of judging that. So. Um, one of the things I would do is try to play as few notes as possible. Yeah. Um, and, and that doesn't mean that, you know, I would strictly adhere to that. I would just try to understand a song. Let's take a song. I would say, how few notes can I get away with playing? Hmm. Is there, are there any notes that I can remove? Mm -hmm. Any, mm -hmm. even if it's just one, yeah. one note. And, uh, and usually if you could find one note that you can remove, that might suggest a pattern. So in other words, if you're playing boom, slap, boom, slap, boom, slap, and then you pick one of those notes to remove, boom, slap, boom, slap, slap, boom, slap, all of a sudden you've got, a, you've got a pattern. So through the process of removal, I would end up seeing by, 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 by presenting less notes than I had originally been playing, I, I was introduced to the concept basically of more complexity with less density. Hmm. So the first thing I sang you had more notes in it, but it was less complex than the second thing I sang you. So that was kind of like my little, you know, uh, uh, sort of like Tarzan's vine that he happens to grab onto as he's about to go into the jungle where anything goes. It was like, it was like once I started to realize that through pulling notes out, uh, I would be introduced to actually more interesting and more complex patterns that were less dense than, mm. than actually what, what I might have initially been playing. Okay, so I consider that to be distillative. I consider it to be reduct. I don't know, maybe it's reductionist or reductive. Mm -hmm. Those words sound kind of ne negative. Okay, so how few notes can I play? Um, and then one other thing I think I would try to do would be uh, how can I play about others? Hmm. How can I make my playing about others? And I'll okay. tell you one way that I that one way that I that I tried to get into this this, this consciousness was by singing. So, uh, and, and I, I'm not the most disciplined about this, and I don't always literally do this. But one thing that it, it could behoove people to do is to find a way of like sing the song that you're playing as you're playing it. Sing the main vocal, yeah. or I don't know, connect yourself to it through your voice. Connect yourself to the song. Okay, that's one way of doing it in, in, say, a practice room or a practice scenario. But also, when you're playing, there's a, there's a tendency when you're young to listen very carefully to yourself, because if you don't, you mess up. Right. Okay? Now, you see, you, you keep screwing up because you're not listening to yourself, so you have to really be very careful. It's like balancing a full tray of wine glasses or something like that. You have to pay very, very close attention to how you move. But of course, hopefully as you get a little older and you build a little bit more comfort, you know, uh, you build upon a, a technique or, or a level of experience that allows you more comfort, hopefully that'll open your ears up. So one thing that I tried to do was make my playing about other people. And, and the way that I feel like I, I've tried to do that, for better or for worse, is to try to introduce into my practice sessions a concept that's similar to like, Let's say I'm a juggler. I'm going to need to juggle four pins. Well, I'm going to make sure that when I practice, I'm going to juggle five pins. Now, 
So, so when I go back to four pins in performance, hopefully the consciousness that I was using to ju- to juggle that fifth pin, that, that 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 fifth pin, I hopefully am using that to listen. Right. To listen. Right. Uh, okay. So that. Sorry, go ahead. I just want to break down a couple of these things because I've been reading some things and watching things uh, that you've presented uh, online, and there's there's a lot of great resources out there that cover some of this. and And I wanted to take a little time to break down some of these ideas. They're they're wonderful, and I can well before I go too much further, I want to address something. You talk about involving other people. Uh, there's a, I, th- I believe it's Elvin was talking. Elvin Jones is talking about when he performs. No, I thoughts like, how am I sounding? Listen, what I can do. Um, you know, you you think outwardly as opposed to inwardly when involving yourself in a, in a performance within a group. You know, complementing the environment. Is that kind of what you're talking about as far as like involving? Other players. I, I think that's an incredible insight. You know that 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 Elvin Jones is offering. It, it, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah. If I, I was talking to a friend of years ago. I was talking to a friend of mine, a guitar player, and the few times we'd play together, he'd turn around to me and he'd go, "No, I thoughts, man. No, I thoughts." I'm like, "Yes, no, I thoughts. You've got, you've got to become a part or or have it a bit of an out of body." experience looking down on it and I find myself concentrating so much on what I'm doing that I become disconnected from the group and it's like dude you're you have to play you have to react even if it's not improvisational music that needs to be um adhered to um the the other thing is that you you talk about the the distillative process uh, you bring up a couple examples uh in past articles uh talking about tea and whiskey uh, and I love this uh that y- there is a complexity that goes into making these products but the end result is the experience uh of enjoying these things you don't want to know it's almost like you don't want to know how the sausage is made you just want to get to it and so there is a way that you work those things into your practice time. Uh, but my question is, what is it that you're working on when you do have time to practice? Um, it, it varies, you know, and it changes over the years because th- there's one thing I think that's, you know, pretty much a given uh, is that every single player um, is going to face their own biases, yeah, their own handicaps. Now, those things are not inherently negative; they're also positive. You know, uh, what what one person could call a, a bias, uh, another person could call a perspective or a point of view. So, you know. Some of the things that you choose, let's hypothetically say, to filter out and not emphasize, that, that's part of how you string ideas together and make co- you know, a sort of coherence, your own style of coherence. Hmm. At the same time, you know, we also, if we live past, say, you know, the age at which rock stars tend to die, like 27 <laughs> or 31 years old, you know, you live long <laughs> enough to get... Uh, you live long enough to get really, really tired of your own crap. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now that I'm going to tie that back into listening. Yeah. For me, for me, um, I a lot of times I try to play very simply, um, and if I'm and, and if I haven't forgotten about myself, 
I try to play even less. And I try to play so little that, you know, uh, the only, you know, it, it's like, uh, the only thing left, I, I would think, is just to listen to other people. So I, I try to do that. If, if I'm in that state of, like, thinking about myself, I pull back. Yeah. I'm like, and I, and I do the best I can to do that. And, you know, I would say that the, the bias is that the reasons why I'm tired of myself uh, are not always solved by that, though. In other words, there are times when I need to, uh, I feel like, interact in ways uh, that uh, I would like to be surprised by what I do happen to play or what gets played. or And, and I would say that be, I, I want to be surprised by that for the way that it affects the total environment. So, you know, if I'm playing something and we're all playing together and then, mm-hmm. you know, if I play the same old lick, let's say, you know, I can't help but be, I can't help sometimes but be bummed out by that. So, right. you know, when I'm practicing, most of the time what I'm trying to do is to is to have a thought occur to me that has never occurred to me before, and okay. perhaps has has never occurred to anyone. So how do you and get that there? actually? Uh, okay, I would say I, there is no set way to do it, but I would say this: I try. I look for a resistance, uh, something where I, I look for uh, a resistance, uh, a place of instability. Mm-hmm. I look for a place. Where I would say, where if I, let's say I'm, I, I, I think, let's think about it as a photographer. I look at it as trying to photograph, to frame something, to capture something, and I can't seem to get everything in focus in the way I do, that I want to. And there's something wrong. I can't focus the image. If, the, if I find a musical image that's blurry in, in, the, in areas that I don't want blurry, yeah. or, or, or if I find a musical image that where the colors aren't right, or I want that to be bright and that to be dark, but, I, but it's the opposite. Why is it the opposite? Or if I find a, an image, a musical image, where the composition's wrong, it's heavy in the wrong spot, but it's light in, in, in the wrong spot, too. Mm-hmm. And I, it, Let's say I want to take all those musical values and start to move them around. What, that's, that's exactly what I try to find. And then I go, okay, now what, how, can I, how can I address, yeah. you know, what I want to hear. How can I make, okay, how can I, how can I make this happen? Now, explaining that with English in a podcast in a way that's going to make sense to people, I, I fear is, is, is going to require more time than, 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 than anyone has to listen to this podcast. I certainly, you know, have the patience and time to try. But I, I would say this, you know, one thing that I do is I, you know, one thing that I've tried to do in the last few years is to practice with uh, at least one exotic subdivision I'll try to use a lot of quintuplets right now just to teach myself, like, uh, with accent regimens or with, like, groove configurations or, like, patterns, mm-hmm. you know, how to, how to feel the space between two quarter notes in a way that's completely different. Mm-hmm. Now, a quintuplet, okay. all those quintuplets, they occupy, you know, a space that triplets don't, 16th notes do, do not. Yeah. So you you can get into a bent sound there. Okay, that's one thing I work on. I work on displacement. You know, I will try to like basically a hemiola. I will try to, mm-hmm. to create hemiolas, uh, uh, you know, within different time signatures to try to hear uh, 
where the, the the important structural notes are in 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 the root time signature. You know, I'll do hemiolas. I'll create melodies within a hemiola. So I'll so, create melodies to flip flop. So for uh, and for the listener, a hemiola is like a repetitive pattern that can go over the bar line. Um, just just kind of like clarify if if that's a, a, a it's a term. I, I've thrown that term out before because it's a joke that an old band leader used to tell me that uh, in the liner notes of Time Out, Dave Brubeck's record, uh, when he first heard the word hemiola, he thought it was a, a skin disorder suffered by the Spanish Armada. Yeah, yeah. It would be great if it was. So it's like da 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 da. There's a great Jobim song called Surfboard that utilizes like two or three different hemiolas within that song, which is beautiful. And I'm hearing what you're saying. I'm also thinking when you were explaining to me, kind of finding those things in the picture that are maybe not real clear. Uh, you know, right now I'm hearing some things about my playing personally where, like, there's a weak limb, say, uh, uh, typically my left side, whether it's my hi-hat foot reacting or my left hand um, giving it the power that it needs when it's over at the floor, Tom. Is that one of the things that you're talking about or are you talking about something different? No, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, okay, so... Like some of that to me is, is, is in a way a problem of language. Okay. Now the left side, if you're right-handed is, it is, um, receptive and supportive. Yeah. Um, the right side is more, um, decisive and aggressive. It's active. So Mm -hmm. you, you, you basically have the right side is like a brick the left side is like grout. Mm, okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, so basically the problem of language is that the left side isn't used to being the noun in the sentence. It's hmm. used to being a verb. And then, the, and then the right side delivers the noun, like who did what, you know. Now, reversing that language means sometimes, like, take, for example, if you're on a double pedal, you know, using the left foot to start playing downbeats in a way that language wise you would you definitely hear it as being the right foot like boom 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 if you hit that if you hit that left foot on the downbeat you'll find that's kind of the easiest most consonant note that you could find you know it's the downbeat you know it's beat one of a bar that's the most consonant note you can have in a lot of ways but your left foot doesn't want to do it because it doesn't it doesn't want to be um a lead actor it doesn't want to be, it wants to be a supporting actor. It, it, it yeah. wants to be an extra. It wants to, to help out, but it doesn't want to be the main course or something. So, yes, absolutely. Like getting that, through that language problem, I think means reversing patterns a lot of times, like, or like you, what I would call role reversal. One yes. of the ways that I've, one of the ways that I've tried to, to explain why I do this to a student or a friend. And, and, you know, and I know some of the, a lot of the stuff that we're doing as drummers is theoretical anyway. <laughs> like, we don't know if it's going to work. We try it. And then it's like, what, what did that result in? I mean, it's like, what kind of player did that make me? I don't even know where I'm going sometimes. Yeah. But I, I would just say that 
getting yourself to play phrases that you already know right-handed, to play them left-handed and or left-footed, that's when you start to change the way that your brain is thinking the language of rhythm, yeah. and it's, it's sort of encoding or activating that language down other neural pathways in your body. And when you do that, you give your body and your brain a chance to start moving towards a new kind of balance. A new kind of balance mm-hmm. facilitates a new kinds of a new kind of synthesis. Yes. Now, balance is not static. Balance when it when you achieve moments of balance, it's incredibly dynamic. It's incredibly powerful. It is like the it's like a battery that's all of a sudden with the contact points, all of a sudden are are running that current. So this kind of balance to me is like. You know, it's it's a type of enlightenment. It's it's a type of it's like a uh, it's a goal. It's it's a place that you know I, I want to be there. That's the zone. Yeah, so yeah. Stre- you know, strengthening these limbs is not an athletic thing to me. It's 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 a problem of language. It, it's it's a, it's a question of balance. And here's the thing: once you've learned patterns on both sides in yeah. mirror images, yeah. Your relationship to pattern, your relationship to the information is fundamentally transformed. Yes. Fundamentally. Yeah. You are you realize that you are not that groove in the way that you're used to playing it. You realize that that rhythmic sort of uh, pattern, that rhythmic kind of like um, uh, it's like a stamp. Uh, it's flowing through you like a current. And, 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 and if you can feel rhythm flowing through you like a current and modulating and, and morphing and changing and flipping, it's like that's the zone. That's the zone. You know, it's almost, I almost feel like when you're first starting out playing and you develop a certain amount of coordination to, to play just a basic rock beat, you have these elevated moments of of like oh wow i accomplished that and it feels so right and it feels so good and you're leading with your right hand and you know you're keeping time with your right hand on the hi-hat and you're laying it the downbeat with your with your right foot and you're doing all these things but still that takes coordination and skill to get to that point i feel like what you're talking about is well it's it's speaking a lot to me because I'm, I'm at a place in my life where I've been doing this for decades. I've been leading with my right hand. I'm, you know, I'm doing this. And I, I it's been a while since I've had those all of a sudden, oh, wow, I did that. I finally got through this. And I know so much of this takes time and patience. And um, there is now a whole unraveling that I can look forward to by doing left-hand lead. Um, the thought that comes up in my mind, you know, about or around what you're talking about is something that occurred to me when I was young, and, and, it, and it appeared to me as, 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 as an adversary. As, it appeared to me as very bad news, and I'll, I'll tell you what that bad news was. <laughs> when I really cared about playing something and I thought it was real cool, and then I went out and played it, that was the part of the gig where I kind of sucked and, 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 and I didn't get any like, you know, response or ego gratification from it. And then the parts that I was taking for granted about myself and maybe didn't even notice, yeah. uh, those were the parts where people might've been like, well, that's really cool. Oh man, that sounds great. And I'd be like, man, that's really frustrating. Cause what I really want to serve you is like this cool stuff that I think is so cool right now. And I want to force feed it to you. So one thing I would say is that I, uh, you know, I, think about what you're saying 
you know, as similar to that. It's like, it's just, it breaking through is something that you, you have to do it, but you're not really going to really learn something until you're really ready to unlearn it. I think it's, you see what I mean? I'm trying to make, I'm trying to make the connection between what you're saying and and, in my own experience. And I would just say that like, it wasn't until I had let go of some information and kind of moved Mm -hmm. around to, 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 into more of a position of unlearning it, that it, it actually, that's, that seems like those moments when something had worked itself into, you know, my musical life in a way that it finally became useful. Um, I don't know. I don't know if that if that I don't know if I framed that in a way that was uh, as, you know as, as well related to what you were saying as I wanted to. But that's that's what I was thinking. Well, I, that. I, I, here's a couple things that um, is similar to what you're speaking of. Um, there's a great Drumeo video of you performing on YouTube. Uh, how to sound? Uh, how to be a really great sounding drummer? And I can tell you from watching that there's some simple ideas that I was able to apply right away and hear a difference in what I had been doing for so long, but then apply some of these things on the gig. Uh, I hate to say, sorry to say to my bandmates uh, that I did this, uh, but one of the ideas was um, you take the uh, the the part of the, of the pattern that you're playing that plays the fewest number of notes and make that the loudest. So if it's the right. kick drum playing on one, and uh, if the snare drum's playing on two and four, it's the second busiest part of the pattern. If the hi-hat's playing eighth notes, it's the third busiest part of the pattern. So the one that plays the least number of notes, make it the loudest. Make the one that's playing the most number of notes the softest, and then find that level of volume in between. What I found myself doing is adjusting the volume of the different limbs in very simple patterns and seeing how it affected the groove and how it affected my connection with the other musicians on stage. Um, if, if it was a day where I don't feel like the bass player and I were feeling it, the pocket in the same spot, I would kind of adjust the volume, but base it starting on that starting principle of, okay, the busiest part needs to be the quietest, the simplest part needs to be the loudest, I'm, I'm paraphrasing there, but in, I noticed a difference. I noticed a huge difference just in applying that uh, idea. It Interesting. Was, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad. I mean, you know, I, I certainly don't want to be offering up information that gets people, you know, into hot water with their bandmates. I, I, and uh, I, hopefully some of it's useful. I mean, a lot of stuff that I say is, is kind of a starting point. I mean, and, and then I, I usually... I find myself abandoning things and just searching intuitively for mm-hmm. whatever sort of uh, perspective, you know, uh, seems to just make things light up and, and become exciting. And, 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 you know, some of that is just taking refuge in, in like the larger context, just as a respite from just being inside of your own head, you know, like, you know, yes. that, 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 that's a lot of the drive for connection for me is, is, you know, I, I actually want to totally forget about, you know, whatever my little story is about life and experience and and, and have a musical experience with people. We all try on 
on different things in our, in our lives. We try on little different, like almost they're like psychological suits. You know, it's like a suit that you're going to put on, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, it's like, take for example, when I was young, um, you know, I, I had, I had some pretty, I, I would think I had some pretty, you know, uh, formidable self-esteem issues. So, you know, there were a couple of different effects of having a self-esteem issue. I think one of them is, is, uh, to be, you know, really self-effacing. And another one is arrogance. You try to make up for it with arrogance. Well, I did both of those things, you know, um, we, we, you know, we definitely try on different things and, and as you grow older, you know, maybe you hopefully, you know, maybe you get a little bit of a sense of humor, including about yourself and stuff like that. Or, yeah. you know, you get a little older and, and you don't need to be, you don't need to prove something to yourself as much, uh, as, as, you know, like when I, I needed to prove things to myself when I was young because of my self-esteem problem. And I get a little older. It's like, nah, that's an irrelevant thing about proving yourself. <laughs> it's like, get off that one. <laughs> so some of the strategies that I feel like if, if I did have a psychological suit on now, I've at least tried to make it like, look, fundamentally, I'm really grateful. <laughs> I'm yes. grateful for, yeah. you know, and, and it doesn't mean that I'm always grateful. It means that I'm trying to be, I'm trying to find the actual real reason why I should be grateful. In other words, I actually call this faith, but I actually think that if we're really paying attention and if we're really tuned into what's going on, we will naturally be grateful. So when I'm not grateful, I'm a little suspicious of my own perceptual bias. So, you know, I, I should be paying attention, hopefully enough, to where I feel grateful. Um, you, you know what I mean? And and then also I think some other strategy I, strategies I have is like, I'm here for the work, and I'm really not here for some kind of friggin' glory or something like that. Now, it, it sounds like I'm preaching, and I'm really sorry. This podcast going to go out, and people will be like, well, this guy really thinks a lot of himself. <laughs> it, but, I, but, but I really am saying, I'm like, I, I have to be honest. I have to say, like, look, I want to do, I want to show, let me frame it this way. I, this is my saying for the year. Ward Cleaver is my Kurt Cobain, okay? Now what? <laughs> When when I was young, you know, I, I wanted to be like, you know, people like, you know, friggin', you know, any rock stars of the 70s and 80s, you know, that, that, that those are my idols. Yeah. And now as I've grown up, I actually, I have a lot more respect for somebody that didn't even show up on my radar, like Ward Cleary he comes home, yeah. you know, he takes care of, he, he takes care of his family. And, uh, you know, it's, he's, he's a, he's a quote unquote normal guy. Well, I see that, that normal guy as a very extraordinary guy. So that's what I mean by showing up for the work. It's like, look. <laughs> let's be real. We're specialists. We're drummers. We're like little scientists in some yeah, ways. Yeah, so yeah. I, I want to go to the lab. I want to, I want to go to the lab or I want to go to work. I want to, I want to do something really great. If I can, if I want to be a part of something really great, if I can, I, w- I want to figure out what I'm not doing right so I can do it better, you know, and uh, I'm here for the work and, and all that glory part, whatever that is, you know, if it's uh, I don't know, whatever, insert, whatever people think about glory. It's like, well, sure. I'd like to buy my girlfriend a house or something. You know, that'd be great. But really, it's like the core values are like, I'm here for the work. If I take care of the work, usually life will take care of me. Right, right. I also think that as the world has gotten smaller, we realize how uh, it's easier to be grateful for what we have and what, what we're able to do. I, I mean, it, it amazes me every year that I I go through a year and having made my living playing drums, there's a very small percentage of those who do it. And, and 
I, I again, not to turn this back around to the podcast, but I, I just have to tell you that the prime motivation in creating this podcast was to talk to drummers that a lot of people don't know uh, to kind of expose the fact that there is a small percentage, but there is a lot of drummers and people that make a living doing this that you're not going to read about in Modern Drummer. You're not going to ever know, but that are doing it. And how are they doing it? Because they're in it for the music. It's their calling. It's not for, it's not for recognition. It's not for this or that. And they're not making, they're not on clinic tours or whatever. And all those things that we grew up Paying, trying to pay attention to that is irrelevant to us trying to just make a living and wanting to play drums and maybe other things, other goals that we have in life, whether it's raising a family or having some other things that um, are quote unquote part of normal society, you know? Yeah, normal. Yeah, yeah when, when, when you consider it normal, you know, when you look at divorce rates in the 1970s and 80s and stuff like that, and, and also the, the statistics of what single single parent homes you know uh visit upon the children that that are raising them yeah. you know on average it's like there's nothing there's nothing ordinary about that that kind of normal we should aspire to such normalcy of like a a really coherent uh, hard working grateful uh you know uh, affluent society you know that yeah. that's affluent for the that's affluent for the right reasons because of innovation and hard work and freedom yeah yeah Amen, brother. That's the reason why you want to be affluent. Sorry, what's that? I said, "Amen, brother." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, like if if there are a lot of, of course, there are going to be a lot of musicians or some at least, uh, and 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 drummers listening to the podcast. It's like uh, all I can say is that there's definitely an internal drive, uh, you know, that that's going on. It's like uh, I definitely feel. A desire to work like the drumming uh is i like to do it it's like yeah uh, when i was a kid and it, you know when i was in school and sitting in the desk like that it, uh, in school for the 12 whatever many years i was in school you know like sitting in a desk wasn't the way that, that, that i was i think i was supposed to learn i was like a nose picking farting you know like obscenity drawing you know uh you know, booger flicking, you know, bad mouth, foul mouth, little shithead, you know, when, 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 and then when, when I started playing drums, it was like, you know, the fact that I needed to just move all the time, that there was something in the world for, for me to do. And then what's weird about that is that the minute that I was, that I had this instrument that I could just move and move and move for hours on, it's like... Then my intellect opened up. So where do you go to find a treasure trove of information about vintage drums, custom drums, and legendary drummers? NotSoModernDrummer.com Since 1988, Not So Modern Drummer is an institution dedicated to researching and documenting the history of modern drums, the art of drum building, and the legendary drummers who play them. The writers and contributors are some of the top vintage and custom drum experts from around the world. Not So Modern Drummer serves as an online gathering place and marketplace for the worldwide community of drummers who buy and sell, collect, preserve, and play these instruments. It also hosts drum-related events that are attended by drummers from all over the world. This website is easy and fun to explore, and the monthly digital magazine subscription is free. So check out NotSoModernDrummer.com. There's a... 
a radio show called On Point. They did a whole episode on grit and um, this this kind of idea as grit being the buzzword for success. Um, th- there's research that shows that uh, grit kind of matters more than intelligence, more than talent, even more than hard work. Uh, in the in the show notes for this episode, it says a, a combination of unshakable motivation, persistence, and determination, and the belief that improvement is always possible. And kind of this new concept of teaching kids the idea of grit and persistence to be a tool for success. A lot of the things that I was learning about you kind of registered with me. Okay. Oh, thank you. Well, I appreciate that. And listen, I, I want to underscore that, you know, I'm not some, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not framing myself as some kind of, you know, natural exponent of all these virtues. But I, what I will say is this. I am not so, you know, ignorant or inexperienced that, you know, that I would fail to notice the truth of what, of what you're saying, okay, mm-hmm. and, 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 the, and the truth of this research. So I, I'm saying that I agree. Well, it, it, let, let, me, let me respond to that. I would say that if you're a young kid, now, if you're like me, failure is going to hurt so bad. <laughs> if you, it, it's going to hurt so bad, you're going to want to die. And that, and that, that's, that's the way I felt as a teenager. I mean, there were, there were times I wanted to quit and, and that was like suicide to me. It, it hurt. So, emo, I was so emotionally attached right. to being good at, to, to being good at this. It, it, it just, it meant everything to me. And if I felt I had failed, you know, it, it was like, I wanted to die. So what I would say is that, that a young person could choose to remember and that I still need to still, I, I still need to remember these types of things, is that failure, what you call failure, that's your narrative, calling it failure. What it really is, it's an experience on the way to some type of success that you could never have planned on. Yes. Okay, so this grit as well, this grit that, that they're talking about, which I, I feel like I agree with and I aspire to that same thing, is that there is nothing like the doggedness of somebody who will not give up that, that, that there is, there is no substitute for that. And remember when I say no substitute, cause I mean, there's no musical genius that can substitute for that. If a musical genius doesn't have that kind of grit, that that's a, that, I, I wouldn't want to be that person. I want to, I want to be the person of middling talent, but, but iron resolve. Yes. But, that's, that's the person that I aspire to be. Look, I mean, I can't speak for the geniuses, you know, and I, I, their experiences, you know, as, uh, you know, thank God for the geniuses. What can I say? You know, but for the rest of us, it's like, man, if, if the power of the will and the dedication and, and that kind of grit, it's easy to form a narrative that, you know, like, ah, well, I didn't work hard enough then, so I must not be one of those people with grit. It's like, look, the time to, like, Redouble is now. No matter what you've done or haven't done, do not form a guilt a guilt complex about all the stuff you have yet to do or have not done or chose not to do at the time. Do it now. And you only have to do 20, 30 minutes a day. But if you do that every day and you're not doing the same thing over and over again, you're actually doing new stuff, the sky's the limit. And I think that, that that gets that's told to a lot of young people so much. But, I mean, what about a couple of questions I had for you? I was kind of saving is what advice would you have for young people? But I, 
I want to use that as your answer, but what advice would you have for experienced players? Oh, I mean... Or have we already covered that? <laughs> uh, you know, if, if, do I have any advice for experienced players? I'm like, I got to say, probably not, because I think that experienced players are forming strategies that, you know, I can't even imagine. You know, far be it from me to, like, you know, that would be like asking me to kind of, you know, sort of globally judge what I think experienced players need to know that I know. And I, 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 I and most of the time when I see an experienced player playing, I'm like, wow, man, I gotta, I gotta check that out. You know, <laughs> there's always like, you know, there's always something that, that I'm going like, man, I really need to like, I need to get my game on. So no, I mean, I'm pretty much, trying to take as many notes as I can when, I watch, <laughs> but, well, when I'm you know, watching somebody play. You know? I appreciate that answer because I, I, I've used that question a couple times, but you know, when I realize, I look back now, it's been those questions I've posed to bass players and yeah. producers, uh, the, the couple that I've interviewed. Um, I want to get into um, a couple things with St. Vincent, if you don't mind. Uh, you mentioned um, that you're getting ready uh, for a tour here, and uh, uh, Mark has given me a heads up that there's some double bass stuff that you're working on. And is this for the, yeah. the first time you've worked with it, and what's the story behind that? Yeah, I've never seriously sat down with a double pedal before. So sitting down, here's the thing, you know, there's the thing, there's an old saying or an old phrase, I guess, or maybe it's just a, you know, a, a couple of words that have been used for a long time. The idea of the glass ceiling. Um, and they use, and they, and people usually use that in, in, in terms of, uh, you know, in, in conversations around like a, you know, a corporate hierarchy or something like that. And there's certain employees that just can't get past the glass ceiling or something like that. Okay. So that phrase to me applies, you know, to how you, you build your, or grow rather not build so much, but how you grow your, your musicianship, you know, and it's like, some, you know, there, there, there are definitely things that pulling out the double pedal showed me about not playing double pedal that I needed to know. You know, so it's like I played the double pedal and I was like, whoa, wow, that's a lot of stuff I don't have together on a root level. And then I would, you know, I'd spend a week in the practice room screwing around on it. And then I, uh, you know, it's, it's funny that these things still surprise me, Yeah. you know, and then I, and then I'd go out and do some kind of work and I'd go, well, look at that. My, my, everything sounds a little bit different and better. And I have, so I have that little glass ceiling that. I didn't. I had kind of even forgotten about. Seems like it's it's pulled back or it's gone up a few feet. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I feel like double kick. Even if you don't ever actually use it, it's like it's a no brainer for just the type of coordination and grounding and like commitment and conviction about just hitting drums in general. It's like there's a lot to do there. So my approach with it is. I'm trying to hammer out a bunch of, you know, coordination, interdependence, independence things with it. Uh, also, like, counterpoint, like, music, uh, dr- uh, rhythmic counterpoint kind of ideas. Like, interesting that I can't hear this, you know, cluster of notes against this other larger body of, like, notes that's in this groove. Like, I, I can't hear certain things. And I'm going, well... I mean, 
what is what does a musician do when they're playing the piano and they can't hear something harmonically or in terms of voice leading? They figure it out, and that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm just I'm figuring it out. I'm going, okay, let's let's notch these different phrases together and get the physical coordination down. What what are my goals with it? Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with playing fast, and in fact, it really has very little to do with playing anything that I ever thought of before. It, what, what I think it has to do with is it's opening up a new set of possibilities um, for groove. Um, definitely, definitely opening wow. up a new set of possibilities for groove. I don't see myself using double kick in a way that's really dexterous or facile. I see myself using double kick as part of like the overall little honeycomb of like, you know, voices and that that exist on a drum kit full of electronics as well, you know. Right, right. You're triggering things with your left foot. And so there's that's that right. there's that dexterity that's been developed to be able to do that. Yeah, the left foot can op- operate, you know, with a certain amount of autonomy and that was a very very little use to me when it was sitting on a hi-hat pedal. Uh and I never really was interested in the not I mean, look, I like the genres of music wherein you hear double kick, but I was never particularly interested in them as a player. So putting my left foot onto electronics, that was a different story. Mm -hmm. You know what? That that, that was like, whoa, that is so cool. Oh, my God, this is so much fun. Oh, my God, you know. And then now it's like, yeah, there's some things that are available there with the double kick that are, you know, they're useful. Just take, take, for example, this, just three notes in a row. (laughs) <laughs> three notes in a row, really powerful three notes in a row. Yeah. Or four notes in a row, like those kinds of things. Yeah. Those are, those are, those are simple things, but they're, they're very useful. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of people talking about how the drum set evolves over this, this real, this very young instrument that we, that we play and, and where it's come in the last hundred years and the evolution of, uh, how electronics has been incorporated into it. And, um, there's a great concert, uh, it's like a 2014, um, of you guys with St. Vincent, I think it's in Paris or something, um, that I watched recently. Um, and there's so much electronics going on with, I, mean, I just feel like there's this equal powerful number of electronics and acoustic. There's, it's all happening together. Um, not, oh, here's acoustic, here's electronic, or I'm sitting behind and like we were watching um, New Year's Eve performances and, and the drummer's sitting behind the beautiful set of drums hitting an SBD five pad the whole time. <laughs> And I'm like, what? Would somebody play those drums or give them to me? Um, and uh, but man, there was so much going on with that, and it made me think: How did that evolve when you first started working with Andy Clark? Were you on an acoustic kit, and then there was a trigger on the left, and then you added more here? Was that there an evolution to that, or was it? Were you thrown into the fire, or was? Do you have a history of like working in electronics with acoustics? Uh, not so much. No, I don't. Um, so one of the, I tried to maintain because I kind of I kind of looked at the, the 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 evolution of this drum kit or these drum kits because each one's different for each tour. Uh, but the, there's a fundamental principle at the heart of them, which is that I'm not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. So yeah, we're having a you know whatever the the the, the you know 
the drum set's changing. I, I don't want to like reduce the real estate of the electronic voices onto like a, a, a tiny little pad that sits where a rack tom, you know, uh, it sits where a rack tom would sit like, like an SPDS or whatever. Like, I don't, I don't want to necessarily do that. I want to maintain the sort of like, uh, usual mode of activity of playing the drums. It's just like, okay, the ride cymbals over there, hi-hats over there, boom, you kind of play around the drums. Like, you know, playing on, on a, on a, on a multi-pad thing makes me feel very claustrophobic. And also there are hidden limitations to that because, you know, if you have your pads spread out around your kit or your bars or however it is, you still have access to things that are very far away from each other. Okay. Mm -hmm, right. Like, your ride cymbal is really far away from your hi-hat or something, or your floor tom is really high, far away from your crash cymbal. So you have access to things that are really far away from each other, and the electronics that you're reaching for can either be very diverse uh, in terms of their sounds, or they can actually be um, uh, carbon copies of each other. Like I could have the same exact sound on opposite sides of the kit. Now that, that really never happened before in drumming. Like you usually had to go to the same space to get the same sound, yeah. the same place to mm -hmm. get the same sound. Like if you wanted to hear the snare, you had to hit the snare. Yeah. You know, um, you know, I just thought that it was more complex and in, in some ways more simple to do it the way that I did it. I was, and then let's let's just like populate all these electronics around it so that I can just kind of you know do what I've always been doing. Yeah. Uh, and and that of course came with all sorts of crazy challenges. And I was like, wow, this is really hard. You know, oh my lord. And I had to of course try to you know get up to speed with it. <laughs> well, how much of that? How much of that is you um, putting that? To, to to work or how much of that is the organization saying hey listen we've got some ideas we've got some drums for you uh we have an idea so uh, you, you know what i'm saying when it comes to the uh maybe preparing for a tour oh i mean everybody i mean musically artistically speaking you know everybody's doing their own version of what i'm doing so annie's doing her own version of it like she's she's doing an incredible amount of sound changes and then playing complex parts against her vocal and so you know she's she's almost entirely subsumed in that which is great because you know she's actually over there and i can i can be kind of screwing up over here in the corner for the first week of rehearsal trying to get it together and she's a little too preoccupied to fire me which is great <laughs> you know it, it gives me a it gives me a little bit more time to get get my crap together um so and then same with daniel now daniel the keyboard player um you know he's way more than a keyboard player. He's the guy that's really facilitating and allowing all this stuff to happen, you know, with automation and Ableton. He's, uh, he's just, he, he's mastered the program. So, you know, he's able to design instruments and, and then continually change them in a way that's very quick. And, uh, you know, I'm, I, I'm eternally grateful for him, uh, you know, to him for, uh, you know, having, uh, helped to create these instruments, which ultimately, you know, like they, they make the whole, musical experience possible but it's it's everybody's pretty much on the on the ground trying to solve their own problems and then of course yes like you know if i start solving what i think of as a problem in a way that sucks 
you know, Annie will let me know. I'll be like, yeah, you don't need to go down that road, and then I'll I'll I'll, I'll shift, shift my focus. So there's a there's a certain amount of freedom, but it, it, unless it's interfering with what she's doing, then you're left to do what you want to do. Yeah, I, I, I that's that's my interpretation of it, it mm-hmm. and I I certainly you know I certainly hope that uh, you know criticism will will come when it, you know, so that, you know, people can just be happy, you know, but, uh, yeah, I think sometimes Annie's quite patient. So sometimes I think that she, she might be unsure of a direction that people are going in, but she'll give it a minute, you know, and, and, and she'll let people work out their stuff, maybe make a, make a, make a criticism if need be, but usually, yeah, there's, there's quite a lot of freedom. Uh, and then of course, you know, with freedom, the other side of freedom is responsibility. So, yes. you know, it's like, uh, I think that uh, I, I I think that goes back to what I was saying before. Like, I'm not in the game of all this, like for eternal freedom. Uh, I'm also in it for like, okay, I want to I want to show up for the work, which is the responsibility part of the freedom. You know, and it's like I want to learn, and that's really hard. You know, it's it's like there's a lot of stuff. I mean, I've had to practice really hard, even up to now, just to get these parts together. It's like uh, sometimes it's, it's more than I feel like I can actually. I can actually, uh, I, that I'm actually going to be capable of sometimes. <laughs> I doubt that, man. I doubt that. Um, there's a team of three of us that do the podcast. There's myself and Zach Albetta, who's the other co-host, and then uh, my co-creator, uh, Mike Jackson, who's a good friend of mine who helps us with technical things. He's a huge St. Vincent fan, and he introduced me to the music, and, and I said, hey, man, do you have any questions? And so he doesn't always participate in this, but he did have a question for you. What's it like being with an artist as they transition and evolve? Is it natural to evolve with them, or is there a time that it's like, okay, I'm out? Oh, interesting. I mean, in my experience, uh, I think that, you know, I think one of the ways that Annie alleviates possible claustrophobia of working with, you know, the same drummer all the time, let's say. Uh, I think that she, you know, when it comes to recording, you know, she and and the producer get together and and they invite in... uh, what, whoever they're feeling and that, and that person will not be me. So that's, that's one way in which creative freedom can be, I think, maintained. It's like, Hey, you can use some other people, get some other voices on the record. And then of course it's, it's up to me to try to learn, you know, like the parts and say, okay, what, 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 what about this? You know, these are choices I wouldn't have made because they weren't made by me. Uh, what can I, what can I learn from that? How can I, uh, how can I grow into this and sort of hopefully, you know, play it as if it were my own or, you know, make it my own in some way. So that's, I think that's part of the answer to the question, which is like, what's it like to be with an artist that's transforming is like, well, I mean, I think one of the things is that uh, you have to be, or it it behooves you to be, uh, you know, um, Uh, open-minded. So uh, like, uh, and I think being open-minded means like, uh, I, tr- I, I, it's like, once again, these are not virtues that I claim to espouse and be, and be the primary exponent for. I'm just saying that, you know, I'm not foolish enough to, to, to not value being open-minded at least to aspire to. It's like somebody saying that they're open-minded is, it's a really foolish statement. Like, Oh, I'm really open-minded. It's like, that's a dumb thing to say, but <laughs> you know, cause, cause it's like, there, there are ways in which all of our minds are kind of closed. You know, and, and, and so it, that, that also goes back to something that I was saying earlier in the, 
in, in, in the podcast is that I, I at least tried to have one thought every now and again that I've never had before. And, and in, in lieu of being actually open-minded, well, at least I had a new thought. Um, does the word, you know what I mean? Does the word flaming pie ever come into your head or is that? Oh, what's flaming pie? Uh, I think that's a, that's a, something that John Lennon said. He just randomly said it just to be like as out there as possible. But Paul took it and ran with it and wrote a, a killer song about it. I don't know. Whenever I think of somebody just, I'm going to say or think something I've never thought before. Flaming you know, pie. The, <laughs> yeah. The, the, it reminds me actually of the tradition of, uh, the, uh, well, the Dada tradition, uh, which I guess would be people like Marcel Duchamp and whatnot. Um, and then it, it also reminds me of John Cleese and, uh, hmm. and, and, and that kind of absurdist, well, surrealist. And, and I think that Salvador Dali was, was a guy that would be good to, to reference in terms of this. It's that it's, it's a deeper philosophical thing. And I, I'm not, my chops of philosophy are incredibly limited, but you know, it, or it's also like similar to, to, to notions in, in, in uh, physics in cosmology like, is space fundamentally closed, or is space fundamentally open? Uh, now, the idea of space even having an architecture at all, of course, is a very counterintuitive idea, but I'm, I'm, I'm saying this from the standpoint of art and consciousness, though. Is it, is it actually possible for somebody to live beyond what they might have at one time thought was their predetermined, pre-described destiny? Is it possible for you in that way to actually move beyond something that the creator predicted, if there is a creator? Is, is it possible for you to, to, to actually change it all or to, to, to really grow? I mean, you know, and these are, that's what I mean. It's like, I'm not sitting here saying like, oh, man, like, oh, you just got to be open-minded. It's easy. It's like, it's not easy to be open-minded. You know, I'm a close, I'm a close, we were talking about commitment before, like dogged commitment. You know what that is? That's discrimination and closed-mindedness. That's what that is. If you, I just told your listeners to be, to be doggedly closed-minded when I told them, when I told them to never give up in spite of anything, and I told and I, and I told your listeners, I told you and your listeners that I want to be that guy, and now I'm trying to tell everybody that now I'm Mr. Open-Minded too. Well, I'm telling you that the balance between those two things is 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 uh, it's a difficult one to strike. They 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 are the. The, the two polarities of existence, in a way, they are an expression of the fundamental polarities of existence. It's like, how do you be doggedly closed-minded and totally committed, but also be really profoundly open-minded and, like, prone towards spitting amazing phrases out, like, you know, burning pie that no one ever thought of? Flaming pie, sorry. <laughs> Flaming pie. <laughs> the, the, there's a couple things that I, I discovered when I was doing some digging uh, first of all, before I go on, I'm not touching anything that you just said, so I'm actually moving on. <laughs> I, I, I heard everything that you said, Matt, but I am not touching that, man. Um, it, I did not realize that you played on uh, Release the Stars by Rufus Wainwright. And, oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, a friend of mine introduced me to that record about five years ago, and it it saved my ass when I was on a tour in Canada for spent many weeks away from my family. And um, 
I, I just I, I adore that record. Uh, and um, I think on one of the tracks, oh, I wrote it down, Between My Legs, there's like this South African drum groove that you do on there. Do you remember that? Uh, off the top of my head, I have to go back and review it. No, okay. at the moment, I don't. Is there anything about that session uh, that you remember or anything to share about that recording that record? I mean, yeah, I would say that, like, it, my relationship with Rufus is one of being perpetually starstruck. You know, Rufus, for me, is, you know, I'm a, I'm a super fanboy. Um, I think Rufus is the greatest. I love Rufus so much. So, you know, I, you know, I'm always, like, a little bit nervous with Rufus and a little bit, like, I'm not, I'm not worthy, um, you know, uh, and I, I just, I feel so lucky to play with the dude. So, uh, you know, I remember having frustration on that session with my limbs, uh, my drums. I don't mean ultimately that I was frustrated. I just mean that I did have some frustration, uh, in, in trying to find the right kinds of sounds, uh, within a relatively brief time. Okay. Uh, you know, I had been touring a lot and, you know, I feel like I could have benefited from having a little bit more experience and time in the studio to, to respond to the songs in a way where I could have had maybe, maybe some sound choices that were a little bit better, more appropriate, you know, for in certain places. So that, that's one thing I would say about recording, but hey, let me just say this though. Um, you know, working with Rufus for me is always like, I'm like, totally amazed by him and the way that he does his background vocals, the way he works, you know, his, the counterpoint, the way he uses harmony and, and all those inner voices and stuff. It's super fascinating to me. Um, and his wheelhouse is very strong in those areas. And, uh, I, I can't tell you how much I respect the guy. It's one of those records that I, I, I listen to multiple times and hear something different every time. It's just great. It, it, the guy's brilliant. It didn't get me the first time I heard it. The, 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 the second song got me right away. <laughs> but um, I think Going to a Town or something like that. But but it was definitely one of those. And, and, and briefly... Grace has always been that way for me, Jeff Buckley's Grace. I, I just have to mention to you, Matt, that that's one of the records that I would listen to and I would go play a gig and, and, and feel like I can play better. And I've always referenced that. And to anyone that knows me knows that. That record has been very important to me for, for a very long time. And I always listen to it for, uh, there's a lot of inspiration from that as well. Oh, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. I also understand you, you started doing some singing, especially on the road with Rufus. Was that a new thing for you? Oh, yeah. That was a totally new thing for me. I mean, and that was that was really fun. You know, like, um, you know, I'm not, not a great singer. I'm not a singer at all. And, and I'm also not. <laughs> it's a funny one. No, it's like, let me, let, me start, let me start with the basic truth. I, I'm not even a singer. So it's like, um, not to mention, of course, I'm not a great singer. So. But you're you know, singing on solo record, your own records too, aren't you? Yeah, but that's more. That's more like you know when I sing, it's more like it's something that I do in order to. It's like a bridge. It's not a destination. You know, it's like okay. hey, I had to build this bridge to get to the island. So it's like the island. I, I felt like I couldn't get to the island, which is the song. I couldn't get there without singing. But the singing isn't really like 
you know, it's really, for me, it's like the song or it's like the overall experience for me is like, that's the main point. My voice is like, yeah, it's like, I can sing like, you know, I have like a one octave range and you know what I mean? It's just like, uh, so yes, singing with Rufus was, you know, I, I, a lot of times, I think maybe I realized it after, after having toured with him for a while. Or maybe I just figured out the way I wanted to describe it. But, you know, listening to Rufus while playing each night, a lot of times I think was very similar to just, you know, like what people feel when they take a surfboard and they go out surfing for an hour and a half. And you just get inside of the ocean and you're like, oh, I'm really glad I'm in the ocean today. It's a whole other game out here. Mm -hmm. And, and, And there's silence. Like, I mean, who goes out surfing with their cell phone? I mean, I'm sure there's going to be numbskulls that are going to be doing that pretty soon, you know, where it's like, they're probably going to, they're probably going to be like freaking, you know, on, on like a, you know, on like some kind of a Skype session while they're on their surfboard on their, on their waterproof phone. But, you know, I'm saying, but for the, for the hundreds and hundreds of years, like people go out into the ocean to be alone and to be amongst something that makes them feel silence, even though it's not literally silence. But, you know, like sometimes Rufus's voice was a place, it, it was deep enough it was broad enough. It was dynamic enough. And just, it's crazy. It felt ancient, but it also felt brand new. It's so weird. His voice is so, I, you know, it's so amazing. I just felt like I was taking a, a every night I would take a dive into a, a really vast ocean. It was great. In-ears are consistently becoming the norm over the last 10 years. And uh, I enjoy using them, and I've gone, I've had gigs where I've kind of gone back and forth using a wedge, using... And I've been playing long enough where, you know, there was no such thing as in-ears. You know, you responded to the drums uh, the way you heard them acoustically, and then ears came in, and you could start mixing all these other things and EQing uh, with the turn of a dial. And I feel like there's been some good and bad with that. I wanted to kind of get your feedback on the use of in-ear monitors and your approach to performing. And maybe if there's a way that electronics fits in there as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. Like, I think that the, the overall change in the performance medium, when you introduce something globally as powerful as in-ears, you know, it doesn't equally change all the parameters. Um, Even within certain parameters, uh, I think you have very, very subtle effects uh, across a spectrum of, like, different volumes or tempos, uh, tonal colors. So I would say that on an immediate level, it's obvious that in-ears significantly reduce one's, you know, aural and dynamic sensitivity to like the environment around them yeah. immediately around them. It's like, that's obvious. And like, there's a lot that gets lost there, but then there's this other thing that happens, which is things that sound loud, no longer need to be loud. Like there can be no speakers on stage, uh, at all, you know, or 
the amplifier that sounds like it's screeching and breaking up is actually a modeling amplifier, and uh, it's not really making much sound at all. And mm-hmm. and you know there are no super loud cabinets on stage, and the drummer can play weirdly. The drummer can play either really. Sometimes the drummer can play really hard while the vocalist vocalist uh, whispers into the microphone, or maybe that can happen. Don't get me wrong; like you know, that that's awful. Oftentimes, the worst thing that can happen. So, I, I would just say that, like, I, it's definitely a trade-off in ears and and playing in that kind of way either with headphones or, or earphones or, or with um, uh, in-ears, is a trade-off. I try to remember that, you know, I came into the music industry and the music culture at an, an equally idiosyncratic time, you know, because the generation before me, you know, a lot of times didn't have any monitors. So we had monitors you know, and uh, but they kind of were just like, no, nope, we kind of have our amps, and then we scream into a microphone, and we bash around, and then there's a sound system. You know, it's like, right. or the generation before them, they didn't even have that. Yeah. And so they had to use different devices, like a device that you had to pay each night called a trumpet player, you know, to get people's atten- attention. You know, you, and, and you, hey, you might even have four trumpet players. You know what I mean? It's like, so, you know what I mean? It's like, it's a... Being in music is a never-ending hallway of constant modulation and, and, and change. So, you know, there's definitely a trade-off. There's things I miss about either the open ear or the, you know, um, or maybe some earplugs and some monitors. It Ultimately, the new technology, the new technology, I think it what it ultimately does is gradually and slowly it serves as a substrate for new, you know, evolutions of like genres and styles and, mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. You know what I mean? I think yeah. that like it's, I have to focus on what's great about it. And I got to say, there's a lot of flexibility with the digital medium and with, with in-ears and with having low volume or, you know, on stage or no speakers on stage. There's, there's a lot to be gained there. You mentioned the trumpet player. I mean, look at the introduction of the electric bass and then the electric guitar and how that completely yeah. changed. And people are like, why were there such big bands? And But we've been living for so long with the combo, the small group, amplified, that create volume. It's like, well, they needed that many musicians to fill a room to get people to dance. We forget, That's about, right. you forget about that. And But... but so some things like the introduction of electronics, although it's we've we've had it for you know whether even in analog form we've had it for so long we're just starting to see it in in new faces uh, or uh, new ways with uh, gosh you know it, it's so funny because I interviewed a, a guy who says yeah I play on a lot of records that were pretty much written and and recorded and produced on a laptop. And then they come to me, and they still need that acoustic drums. So it's so funny to hear that, knowing that in the 80s, everyone thought they were going to get replaced by a machine, where yeah. we've almost come full circle, where everything is a machine, and now let's throw some acoustic drums, some vintage acoustic drums, on top yeah. of this recording to give it some character. That's right. That's right. Well, it's interesting the way that, you know, I heard it, 
said one time by somebody who was analyzing some paintings, and they were analyzing a painting where there was no blending of colors. It was just, it's like, it's like kind of like a Van Gogh type thing where it would just be like, boom, a stripe of yellow, boom, a stripe of blue. And, it, and, it, and they wouldn't be blended. They would just be like raw colors, right, sitting next to each other. And you step back and the eye blends them. But, uh, you know, it's, it, it's, it's kind of similar to that. It just, it just reminds me of, you know, how if you bring in a, a scenario where everything is so clean, everything is so sort of, maybe it's sterile or it's very, um, uh, uh, I, I can't think of the word, but I, it, it's uh, like a clean room or something. You know, it's funny how uh, an artistic value, like something with a lot of humanity, uh, all of a sudden has a new value to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, at the same time, it, it's like what I was saying about the, the painting. Like, if you start to blend your colors, if you start to blend them, a lot of times painters would find that, oh, no, I can't start blending the colors in one part of the canvas because then i got to blend all the rest of them because it, it doesn't look right, because it doesn't look unified as a canvas. So what I find interesting about that is that it's very strange the way you can't predict those things. It's like, where do you add the humanity? Like, where are you able to, say, do a little bit of color blending where before you were using a different kind of regimen with your brush? Like, maybe not at all. Or, you know, what's the limits of what you can do with software? Like, mm-hmm. you know, can, can, you, can you create music that everybody thinks is just the best that it could possibly be without any live musicians? Well, sure, I, I'm sure you probably can. Mm-hmm. But, but it's funny what comes up. It's like, well, what part of that kind of human thing now shows up as being valuable that we can actually get away with? Now, it, 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 you see what I'm saying? It's like yeah. you can't get, you can't get away with all those things. Like I was saying before, you can't get get away with blending one quarter of the colors on your on your palette you, on your canvas. You can't do it a lot of times. You have to keep the same brushstroke regimen throughout the, pa- the the painting. But there is nonetheless some area where a bit of humanity and and a bit of like you know like uh, something that's adversarial or opposing or something that's very contrasting. You can introduce it, but it's fascinating to me to hear that it's like it, it, it comes oftentimes in the form of a super digital record with like, you know, 1965 drums on it, you know, with with two mics. Right. And that's what works. Well, <laughs> so do you, and we talk about the, the evolution of the drum set and the, how it's set up. But do you think with the influence of electronics and precision uh, performance from a computer, do you think that's changing? That's affecting our backbeat as well? I think so, yeah. I think it is. I mean, it, it, it's a difficult concept for, for me to, 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 definitely for me to understand and also to articulate, but it's almost like a, a concept of value substitution, okay? So in the past, I think that musicians used, a lot of times unknowingly, musicians would use tempo as a value in order to, and they would exploit that in order to get a certain kind of emotional payout. So 
and, and, and we all know how this can work to the, to the inverse, but like, you know, musicians would naturally speed up a little bit because they were getting excited and hopefully it worked. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, God, God, God bless all of us, you know, for rushing, <laughs> you know, we all rush sometimes, um, you know, but like in an, in, in a scenario where musicians no longer have the liberty to rush, they have to find another thing to substitute for that tempo value in order to create an emotional payout. So you see what I mean? So it's like people will find a way uh, and what that way will be. They will just use other musical devices uh, in order to, to exploit them towards a huge emotional payout. Uh, I don't, you know, I, I, I don't know exactly in any particular example how to do that, but I know it's, I know that you can do it. And, and, you know, like people used to use the fact that things might be a little bit out of tune to, to get like a really gnarly, sweaty, sexy feeling of like, this is real. Mm-hmm. And like, and also create like a miasma of like, really complex overtones that, that once again, it's not at the forefront of the music. It's kind of that, like, it's, it's, it's that, you know, it's that medium that the music's kind of swimming around and it's like, it's, it's the, it's the overall context, but the out of tunedness of it was this thing that people took for granted. And then they could exploit that to maximum payout, like really, really amazing somewhat microtonal music. Now, music is very overly tuned now, which is basically, from a different dimensional perspective, exactly the same as it being quantized. What we're doing is we're quantizing on the level of tempo, and we're quantizing on the level of discrete pitches. It's all... It's all what all that is, is is basically we are regulating and making more precise and more exact, more... I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the best descriptors are, but we're basically doing the same thing on the on on the level of pitch. Now that removes a lot of the sexy greasiness and the realness from the music. Uh, I think at some point, you know, I think that it becomes harder and harder to get the same kind of emotional payout. But let's assume that there are some geniuses out there that can take perfectly even, perfectly metronomically, you know, regulated music and perfectly tuned music. Now, of course. In the fine, in the asterisk at the end of that little phrase I just used is, is the is the footnote which says there's no such thing as perfectly tuned music, and that's actually true. But but basically, let, there has been a revolution. Though I will not ignore the fact that there has been a tuner revolution, and that 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 has not always been a great thing. I mean, I I like music that has a bunch of stuff that's kind of quote unquote out of tune. As long as you've got some masterful musicians, you know, like making making a meal out of it. Yeah. And you talk about like creating intensity without having to move the tempo. Like I think there's, there's examples in classical music where that, that has happened. Um, there's an intensity that's built sometimes even in the tempo slowing down that maybe the page could be taken from some of that stuff that we, that we forget about, uh, that, that was utilized for hundreds of years and, you know, I mean, I know that that wasn't perfectly tuned, but when you have that many people on stage, they have to be somewhat in tune with each other. So I think some of the same principle applies where, 
you can have something that's very in tune, but th there's an intensity and there's a dynamic that is utilized in, in, the, in the best way possible. Well, you know, when, when, when let's, let's just, I'm just talking about it from the standpoint of like what I'll just call emotional payout. Mm -hmm. You know, okay. The, the, the image that's coming to mind when, in, when you were talking there, uh, further about, about what we're talking about is the idea of the Joker. Uh, and I don't mean like the actual Joker, like in Batman or like the Joker in the deck of cards. I mean, the archetypal Joker, like, Oh, not Steve, like Miller, not Steve Miller, the Joker. <laughs> <laughs> not Steve Miller. Yeah, I'm not talking about Steve Miller. I mean, I, I mean, <laughs> Sorry. That's a good one. no, I'm just talking about like the archetypal, like, you know, like the, the, the reason why this character keeps popping up, you know, across cultures and across, you know, centuries in like in theater production or in a movie or in a TV show or in, you know, uh, in, in comedy or, or in literature or whatever it is. What I'm saying is this, I find it very interesting that a lot of times the path towards some kind of emotional payout involves making, involves allowing the Joker in, allowing the Joker into how you weave that thread. So a lot of times where I thought as a younger person that I had to play louder yeah. and with more intensity, I discovered that that wasn't necessarily wrong, but that there's this other way that, that where I was like, uh, pull, don't pull back. I don't mean pull back. Like, I don't mean like pulling your investment out. It's actually totally not like pull back. It's, it's like, no, you're, you're equally invested. You're a hundred percent in, but you use different devices, like a, more of a listening spirit or more of like a, a, a making the sound that you're making more transparent or, or you're dynamically, you drop something to create some kind of tension or a vacuum that you're going to fill with something else or what I'm, that's, I'm trying to relate that with the Joker because when you think about the Joker before the King in some hypothetical story that I've never read, cause I'm a freaking literary moron, but the, the Joker sits before the King and actually does things that everybody else would get killed for. He makes fun of the King. He makes fun of the King's policies. He, uh, he makes a joke out of the King's concubine, whatever. But the king, the king loves the guy. And what I'm saying is that there's an alternative narrative there in this Joker archetype. It's like when you're the most serious, try to see the humor in it a little bit. Or like when you're absolutely sure that you need to buckle down and start bashing, maybe you need to start listening or something like that. And, and like, once again, I'll say it for the fifth time. I'm not the exponent of this. I'm, I'm not the best example of this. I'm just the guy that's not dumb enough to, to, to have come around to not valuing it. This is the kind of shit that I value. This is the shit that, like, you know, like, it's probably the shit that saved me, you know, if I ever needed anything. It's just like, dude, you know, there's an awakeness to that. You know what I mean? There's an awakeness in the moment that keeps you out of some stupid narrative, you know? Well, Matt, that's why we have so many different guests on this <laughs> podcast to hear different voices. But there's there's also a reason why I was very excited to have you on as well. 
uh, because of, of the things that I've heard you do, the things that I've followed uh, over the years that you've done, and, and many of the people that I know that value your input and your perspective. And that alone is is enough, man. It's great. And, and, and the proof is there. I really appreciate you uh, inviting me uh, onto the podcast. It, uh, you know, it's uh, my pleasure, my honor to uh, you know, participate. I, I'm uh, happy to count myself amongst your other guests. Matt, it, it, it's, it's just been awesome. It's been a pleasure uh, speaking with you uh, and, 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 and just taking the time to, to be with us, dude. I, I, I so appreciate it. And, and again, I, I thank Mark Stepro again for connecting us. Um, but Matt, thank you so much. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, thanks a lot. Happy New Year to you, Matthew. And uh, I appreciate your time, and I look forward to, uh, look forward to you know, uh, being out there in the, uh, in the Internet sphere. Yeah, yeah. Awesome, dude. Well, hopefully I get a chance to see you live, or hopefully we get a chance to meet in person at some point, too. Oh, great. Yeah, well, get in touch, please. All right, Matt. Thanks, dude. Have a great evening. All right, you too. Bye-bye. So there you go. There's my conversation with Matt. I thank him for taking the time to speak with me. Also to Mark Stepro for making that introduction uh, to me with Matt. Uh, I did not go into it too much with Matt because I feel like the subject of him working with Jeff Buckley on that record, Grace, and uh, the studio record they were working after, uh, Grace, which was in mid-production when uh, Jeff tragically died, uh, has been a subject that's been covered exhaustively with Matt. And uh, but I, it, it just I just have to mention that that has been an important record. Jeff Buckley's Grace has been an important record for me. It's one of my Desert Island records. It's one of the records, like I mentioned to Matt, that I listen to inspiration uh, as far as his playing. I know he's not a huge fan. I know that a lot of us aren't huge fans of our own playing and listening to what we do, knowing we could have done better or for all these other reasons, but I make no apologies about that performance and what effect it has been on me. That being said, uh, speaking with Matt was a little nerve-wracking, and there was a lot of editing that went in, uh, taking a lot of the stuttering that came from me, uh, being such a fanboy of, of Matt and his playing. I urge you to check out his uh, performance and lesson on Drumeo. You can find it on YouTube. It is an excellent supplement to this podcast. Um, If you haven't seen it, check it out, man. It is incredible. And his ideas are just out of this world. And I've watched it maybe three times and still get things out of it. My thanks goes to Mike Jackson for his technical assistance. Stay tuned next week for Zach Albetta's interview. And as always, go to WorkingDrummer.net to see all the extra interviews, t-shirts we have for sales, uh, ways that you can contribute to this podcast. I thank you all for listening, and I hope to see you around. Bye-bye.